I hope and pray that it is out of joy that we adore him this morning, not out of obligation, uh, not out of a sense of duty, but out of a deep and abiding joy for all that he has done for us. I feel uh, very disconnected uh, this morning. I think between first a vacation and then a golf ball and then various other things, uh, I, I just feel very, very uh, disconnected. And, and so there's a few things that I want to mention this morning, but I, I don't want to spend uh, a, a ton of time on them. Uh, a few, so let me, um, look, first, uh, I want to welcome some new members who, actually they've been members for some time now, but we've been trying to get our schedules coordinated. Are Gordy and Ellie here? I know they are, I just don't see them. Where, where are, stand up, Gordy and Ellie Rubard. Are, uh, they've gone through the process, met with the elders, and are joining us in membership, and uh, we're really, really excited and grateful to God for that. Uh, tonight, we're going to announce this again, but uh, I missed last month as I was gone, but we'll We'll have our gathered prayer time tonight, uh, praying for one another, praying for uh, this new vision we've set, but also really specifically praying for families. Uh, families are hurting and broken and under attack, and we just want to ask God to use us to be a blessing upon families. So join us tonight at 5, from 5 to 5.30, we'll pray together and then have a potluck meal afterwards. Uh, it'll be wonderful. Uh, today is the last Sunday, and I, I, I feel like I, I uh, missed the ball on this one as well, uh, but um, Crew is leaving next Saturday. Uh, so if you're not familiar with what Crew is, all the kids wearing blue shirts like the one Andrew's wearing uh, this morning uh, served and led our VBS here um, uh, this last week, which was great, and uh, there's going to be pictures and video coming from the pool party Friday night. It was an incredible time uh, just uh, to have fun together as a, a faith family, and I was really, really grateful for that time as well. But um, we're going to be heading off with a group of how many kids and how many leaders? 18 students and nine leaders to help a church over in Beaverton uh, with their VBS as well as some other service projects. And uh, if you were around last year for it, you know what a blessing that was. So uh, we have a hard leave time at 8 a.m. next Saturday. However, uh, last year we commissioned the kids off and prayed for them, and I failed to organize that this year. We are, however, going to pray before we hit the road. So if you are so inclined to join us at 7.45 next Saturday, uh, this coming Saturday, to, uh, to pray for uh, crew as they head off to do this ministry. Uh, we would love to have you here to, uh, to join us for prayer. And we do still need some funds to cover the expense of that. So uh, if you would uh, be so gracious as to help us cover those costs, that would be great as well. And then lastly, what we want to we let you know that um, Allie, has, uh, Allie McClenny, the office director, has served the church for, uh, I think, seven years Last month was, uh, was her timeline. Uh, I'm not sure the exact date of that, but she has given us her resignation, and so uh, this week is her last week working on, uh, here with us, and so if, uh, if you see her around this morning or next week, just give her some, uh, some love, let her know how she has helped you or made a difference in your life, and just uh, 
certainly show her some kindness as she moves on to, uh, to other things. Madeline is going to be stepping up her hours, and we're going to see how we can do at, uh, at filling both, uh, both roles with, uh, with one person. We think it might help uh, the budget, and uh, we, if you notice from your worship folder, we finished uh, the fiscal year uh, pretty far down from budget, and we're hoping that God is going to do big things, particularly with the addition of a, a full-time worship director but, um, or worship pastor, but we're not going to even advertise for a worship pastor until we've met uh, giving two consecutive months, because we don't want to put ourselves in a financially precarious position. Uh, it's a big dream that we're, we're praying about, but, um, but we are committed to not seeking out that full-time role until we can make budget. And we, um, well, I think maybe um, to most of our recollection, finished uh, percentage-wise of giving way, way lower than, uh, than, than many of us, certainly than I remember, but that only is a couple of years, so uh, there's that. But uh, okay, with those things, uh, let me read our text today, and, uh, and then I will pray, and we will look at what the Lord has for us in his word. I will be reading to you Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 to 12. But when he saw, that is John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the message of John the baptizer and, and his faithfulness to proclaim it. And as we look at this, this passage that really shows us most, uh, the most of any passage of, of his ministry and message, Lord, would you give us um, uh, clear and sharp minds to understand what you are teaching us through your word here? Would you uh, give us great hope in, in what we see here as this passage uh, comes off sounding very harsh and in, in many ways it is, but there is also this incredible glimmer of hope here. Lord, may we ha have an understanding of, of ourselves and who we are, of you and who you are, and may we have great hope in what you have accomplished for us and, and through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that we would not only have soft or, or, or uh, sharp minds, but that we would also have soft hearts, that there would be a willing obedience. Lord, if there be a faith in us this morning that is not a, safe that, a faith that saves, would you reveal that? Would you bring us to repentance? Would you show us how to respond to the truth of, of who we are and who you are? Would we want to pray this morning for um, the Brennans, and uh, we just thank you for the fact that they're home, and we get to see them and spend time with them. Lord, we, um, 
We just want to praise you that there are people who uh, are moving to where they are to join them in the work, and, uh, and, and that's been a prayer for some time, and we just thank you that they have uh, that kind of encouragement and support to be present with them. Lord, we pray for those who are going to be joining them in the work that you would do great things through them as well. But while they're home, Lord, would you give them opportunities for rest? Would you give them uh, opportunities to see and spend time with family? May those, may those times with family be uh, joyous and wonderful. Lord, would you give them wonderful connection with us as a church? Would you help us to be quick to invite, quick to spend time, quick to hear uh, what they're doing and how it's going and, and to open our homes and our lives and to just welcome them, Lord. We, we don't want them to come home after such a stay and find themselves lonely and disconnected, but Lord, would, we just, uh, would you help us to simply uh, just embrace them and envelop them into the life of the church and that uh, there would be great joy and rest in that for them as they uh, get prepared to head back. Lord, would you, above all else, glorify yourself today. Let us see you for who you are. Let us, let us see ourselves for who we are, and then uh, show us just how much you, you love us in all that you've done for us in Christ. And it's in his name we ask these things. Amen. I would ask you this morning, what is the message of the church? What is the message of the church? If you could just boil the message of God's word down to one phrase or just a few words or, or subsequently the message of the church down to a few words, what would it be? Would it be God loves you? Would it be obey? Would it be God wants you to be healthy or wealthy or happy? Certainly, some of these things are true, but none of these things, I would say, are the main message of God's Word. And, and thus, they're not the main message of the church. I think if we were to boil all of Scripture down to three words, it would be this, Jesus saves sinners. Jesus saves sinners. It's the basic message of the Bible. And most of the sermons that we see in Scripture from John the Baptist last week as we saw the opening of Matthew chapter 3 and John's ministry to the seven sermons recorded in the book of Acts, and that's really uh, to Jesus' sermons throughout uh, the Gospels. We see these, uh, they're, they're like the Reader's Digest version. They are, we get the condensed version. We should not presume that, that, hey, look, John the Baptist could get the message across in nine words. Why does it take you 45 minutes, Logan? Because really, in the context of Scripture, I'm pretty quick. Last I checked, I didn't preach past midnight, and none of you fell out of a window and died, like the Apostle Paul. So I think I'm doing pretty good at 45 minutes. Madeline's probably thinking, well, when you can keep it that short. <laughs> no. uh, we get these condensed versions uh, of, uh, of these messages. And most of them are condensed down not to just the message that Jesus saves sinners, but what we get condensed in there is also the, the uh, response to such a message. So if the message of Scripture is that... Jesus saves sinners, what is the response to that message? 
I think what we see as the Holy Spirit through the authors of scriptures has condensed these message, uh, condensed these uh, sermons down. We see that the most common response to the message that Jesus saves sinners in scripture is repentance. It is repentance. And as Pastor Chris preached last week, these words, in uh, the, the Hebrew word means to turn around. The, uh, the Greek word means to turn your thinking. There's actually another word built in there. But the, the image, both in the Old and New Testaments, for repentance is that of a change of direction, a change of thought, a change uh, of heart. And if I could boil it down, what we really see, uh, particularly as Jesus illustrates this message in the parables, and we're going to see this a lot, is a change of affections. That, 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 that this message of repentance is a call to change what we love. I think sometimes the way we speak of these things, we, we, we treat the message of repentance like it is merely an intellectual assent. That if you would just think rightly about who Jesus is, nothing else matters. And I don't need to go through the history of it, but there's this, uh, over the last 40 years, been this free grace movement in the church, particularly in, a mo- in America, and, and we, we should look through titles because certainly we believe that grace is free, to us anyway. But the free grace movement taught that if you would just pray a prayer and say the words of the sinner's prayer, regardless of what your life looks like, regardless of how you live, regardless of where you place your affections, you're on your way to heaven. And evangelism over the last 40 years has has not so much been like Jesus with the rich young ruler saying, love me or love stuff, but you can't love both. And we've morphed that message into, well, if you will just think rightly and say these words, you can go live however you want and you're you're saved. But that's not the message of Scripture. What what we see the the message get boiled down to, and we saw this last week from John the Baptist, verse 2 of chapter 3, repent, turn, make a change, go a different direction, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then this message just gets put on repeat Throughout the book of Acts. It's going to be some time down the road, but I'm pretty convinced at this point that when we're done with the book of Matthew, we're going to head into the book of Acts. But this message of repentance in the book of Acts shows up in chapters 2, 3, 5, 8, 11, 13, 17, 19, 20, and 26. It is the message that gets put on repeat. We hear a very, very similar uh, passage to this, uh, this passage that we've read in, in Matthew chapter 3, uh, given to the church in Thessalonica, in 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 8 through 10. Listen to this, where Paul instructs them and us, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. I love this verse. I pray this for us all the time because I pray, I hope, our desire, God's desire for us is not that we would have a private faith, but that we would have an incredibly public faith. 
that, that the whole world would see our faith, that it has gone forth everywhere, like it or not, whether people hate us or love us, I pray that the people in this valley would see our faith and hear our words. Notice it wasn't just that they lived out their faith and that that had gone everywhere, but that the word of the Lord had sounded forth from them. It's really easy to placate our consciences on evangelism when we don't speak up by saying, hey, as long as I just live it, that's enough. That's not what we see here. As Paul commends the church in Thessalonica, he commends them that the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but also that your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. What does he mean by so that we need not say anything? I think we would, what we see here is that if the word of the Lord does not resonate from the church and the faith of the people does not go out from the church, then there is something to say. There is correction needed when a church fails to do these things. He goes on, verse 9, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned, there's the idea of repentance, to God from idols. We should, not be, uh, we should not reduce idol worship to an object before which one bows. Your family could be an idol. Your business or your job could be an idol. When it's summertime and the weather's nice, in fact, I had somebody who I talked to about teaching a class uh, one time say, I would teach that class, but I won't do it in the summer because I won't put the prep in for nobody to show up. It's very trendy in the Pacific Northwest when the weather gets nice, our idol of recreation over our affection for God begins to get served. And so the church clears out. I'm not saying don't go on vacation. Not at all. I'm just saying there are many things that can be idols that aren't formed by hands and bowed down before. But these Thessalonians, they turned from those idols. They repented of those idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the message that John the Baptist faithfully proclaimed. And last week, we saw that many people's response to that message was confession and baptism. We saw this very appropriate response to the message of repentance. Jesus saves sinners. I'm one of those sinners. I need to turn from my sin, turn from my idols, repent of those things, trust in Christ, have a change of affections, and follow him. And, and, and the result of that was to be baptized, this symbolic placing into this kingdom that is announced. Pastor Chris mentioned last week that uh, there was enough of, and this is my words, not his, there was enough similarity in, uh, in the act of baptism from John the baptizer here to, to draw their uh, attention to something that they would have understand, understood, this, this 
this ceremony that would have brought somebody into the nation of Israel. It was, it's how a Gentile became a citizen. But there's enough difference that everybody would have known this is not the same thing. It hinted at something, but was different. Because it wasn't a baptism of citizenship, at least not into an earthly kingdom, but it was a baptism into the kingdom of heaven. And so this, the, you, you become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven by repentance, by a change of direction in life, heart, affections, everything changes. I love the way one pastor spoke of his days prior to salvation being his hell-bound race. And then God intervenes. And there's a change in direction in my life. I'm no longer bound towards hell. I'm bound towards heaven. But my life has to take that shape. It's not just my thinking that changes. It's my affections that change. It's my life that changes. My whole life takes course in a new direction. And this was the message that John the Baptist, or maybe better said, John the Baptizer, faithfully proclaimed. Today, we're going to see uh, some of the wrong response to John's baptism. If confession of sin and repentance of sin and baptism is the right response to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, we see in the Pharisees and the Sadducees uh, 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 the wrong response. So let's continue to look at this story, and we're gonna, uh, this story and we're going to see it unfold in four parts. First, we have the setting, and we, I've already alluded to this, and we have to touch back on last week, where John the baptizer is in the Jordan. He is, he is in the area of the Jordan River, east of, on the east side of Israel, probably down by the Dead Sea. The Jordan River connects the Sea of Galilee to the north with the Dead Sea to the south, and he's baptizing in this Area. He is wearing a, a camel's hair and a leather belt and eating locust and wild honey. And this would draw the, the reader back to 2 Kings chapter 1, where this is the description given to us of Elijah the prophet. And this is really important in Israel in that day and time because for 400 years plus, there has not been a prophet in Israel. God has been silent. And all of a sudden, he is speaking again. And he's speaking through this John the baptizer, and the people are coming to hear the message. And the message is repent, because there's wrath coming. And, the, and, and much of the crowd gets it and responds rightly, but these Pharisees and these Sadducees, they do not. So John is announcing the kingdom and calling for repentance. So look with me at verse 7. But when he, again, that is John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism... This is an interesting verse linguistically. We don't know if the Pharisees and the Sadducees are coming together or if they're coming separately. The language seems to, uh, to, to have the idea that they're coming together, which would be incredibly, incredibly rare. These are polar opposites. The Pharisees are religious legalists. The Sadducees are political aristocrats, and their beliefs could not be more opposed. They differ in everything that they think here, but the language seems to say that they're coming together, and, and I, there's debate as to whether or not they're coming to investigate 
John's baptism? Because the language in the Greek could mean that they're coming to see what's going on or that they're coming to be baptized. I'm inclined personally, and we'll get there, to think that they're coming to actually receive this baptism. But either way, whichever the text means, it doesn't really change the meaning of the text because what we see is they weren't coming for good reasons. Verse 9 shows us that they didn't think they had any need for repentance. And we'll get there. So whether they're coming to investigate John's baptism or, as I think, coming to be baptized by John, they weren't coming for his baptism in the way that John was preaching. They weren't coming for repentance. They were, after all, above that. I don't need to be baptized. I'm not like those sinners. I'm a Pharisee. I'm a Sadducee. They would have welcomed the idea of the Messiah. They probably would have understood that John the baptizer was the forerunner to Jesus, as we saw in in verse uh, 3 and and from this quote from Isaiah 40, verse 3, the voice of one in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. If they had connected Isaiah 40 to John, they would have been like, it's time for the Messiah to be here. And if my going down there and getting baptized prepares the way, helps him come, brings in this ruler who will free us from Roman oppression, well, dunk me. But this is not the message that John was preaching. And so they have, in the second half of verse 7, a showdown. When he sees them, he says to them, you brood of vipers. This is a small, poisonous easily missed snake in the desert. This is probably the same kind of snake that Paul gets bit with in Acts 28, and the locals think he's a god because he doesn't die from this snake bite. This was, there was no anti-venom then. There was no treatment. He would have at least swollen up badly, uh, more likely than that, died. And so John introduces himself to them by saying, hey, what are you doing here, you group of toxic, poisonous, death-dealing killers. I'm sure they did not receive that well. They are, though completely different, the same classification of sinner. As we all are, by the way. But the Pharisees are the legalists. The Sadducees are the licensists. If I can make up a term. The the Pharisees, as Pastor Chris mentioned last week, had rules to keep them from breaking other rules. Oh, here's a law we don't want to cross, so we're going to put a bunch of laws in place that keep us from even getting close to that. And because we obey all the rules, God is pleased with me. Many of us are legalists. And we, we, we have our own rules, we, and, and our own rules aren't bad, but we begin to place those rules on other people. And we say, oh, if you really loved God, you would be like me. You would follow my rules. You, you, would, you would do all these things that I do. And we begin to puff ourselves up, because after all, we're keeping all the rules, and I'm a good pe- person. And then from the same root, on the opposite side, there's those of us like the Sadducees who are like, well, I'm a good person because 
I don't play by the rules. The church for so long has been all about rules and legalism, and I'm going to shuck those rules. I'm going to play cards. I'm going to watch movies. I'm going to drink alcohol. I can't find anything in Scripture that says any of those are wrong, by the way. The problem is not necessarily partaking in any of those things. The problem is that we then begin to do the exact same thing the legalists do. Well, I'm better than you because I don't play by your rules. I'm better because I've been set free from those rules. If you were a better person, you would be like me. Not playing by the rules. And we find that whether it's legalism or license, it's, the root of it is the same sin. And maybe this is why Matthew is drawing us into these two groups together. Because both of them thought that they were better than others. Some because they played by the rules, others because they didn't. And this, they didn't need repentance. This, both of these ideas are toxic. They're death-dealing. When we begin to think of ourselves better than others, uh, one pastor called this relative righteousness. The standard of holiness ceases to be God and begins to be other people. Well, I must be okay because at least I'm not like you or him or her or them, whoever the them is. The problem is when rather than fixing our eyes on Christ and being obedient to Him, when rather than, than anchoring ourselves in hope to His standard of righteousness, when we begin to look at the world and just keep our distance, as the world slides farther and farther into sin, so do we. Because all we're doing is rather than anchoring ourselves near God, we're just keeping our distance. And then we find ourselves in grave trouble. Like the Pharisees, we think, well, the wrath of God is just coming on them, all the meanwhile incurring it ourselves. I think there's two basic problems here that leads to both of these sins. Either we don't understand God. No, I don't think it's either. It's got to be both. Because both of these go hand in hand. The problem with all of this is that we don't understand God and we don't understand ourselves. God's not angry anymore. That's that Old Testament God. That's, that's that pagan deity God. He, he's not like that anymore. One theologian who's written a ton of good stuff recently in a book just a few years ago said that the idea that Jesus would die on the cross to incur the wrath of God on our behalf is closer to paganism than anything you find in Scripture. What a tragedy. Because if we think God's not angry... We don't understand God. And if we think we don't deserve his anger, yes, God's angry, but he's angry at those people out there. Not, not at me. 
then we don't understand ourselves. We become like the Pharisees and like the, the Sadducees, not understanding God, not understanding ourselves. Let me remind us of how 1 Thessalonians 1, 8 through 10 ended, that we have turned from, to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. If you think, oh man, God was angry in the Old Testament, but Jesus fixed that. You know, that's how God used to be, but it wasn't, it wasn't the best thing. And so Jesus has repaired God. He's changed God. He's improved upon God. Oh, you're mistaken. Because God is as angry at sin as he ever was. Or Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 10. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Put on the new self. Acts 17, 30 to 31. The times of ignorance God overlooks, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. There is still wrath to come. And just because God's patience, as we're told in Romans, is meant to lead us to repentance, it does not mean that we should somehow think God isn't like that anymore and he's been improved upon. Don't think that your obedience is sufficient to rescue you from that wrath, nor your disobedience. Don't be a Pharisee or a Sadducee, because in that is just death. It's toxic. It's poison. They show up, and John says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? The, I mean, this whole sentence is dripping with sarcasm. The answer, nobody. They didn't think they had any wrath to avoid. That was for all those other poor suckers. And then he issues them a sentence. He says, bear fruit, verse 8, in keeping with repentance. Clearly, the call is to repentance, not works. He's not saying bear fruit so that you will have repentance. He's saying your life needs to match the repentance that you profess. See, here's the problem. And I'm going to make a shocking statement and then I'll back it up with God's word. There is a faith in God that doesn't save. There is an intellectual assent to who God is and the person and work of Jesus Christ that doesn't save. And he's saying, look, you, you guys may say you have repentance, but the fruit says otherwise. If I put an advertisement... On, uh, on the internet for a fruit tree in my yard that you could come and get. I'm going to sell this fruit tree to you. And you want to know, is the fruit tree healthy or not? What are you going to look for? Fruit. That's right. Fruit. Because healthy trees bear fruit. 
and unhealthy trees? Do not. John the Baptist is not telling us that that it is the fruit that makes the tree healthy, but that the fruit is the evidence of the tree's health. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This is is what James teaches us in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 20. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? What good is it? The answer? Nothing. It's no good. If you have faith but you do not have works, it's no good. Then he asks the question, can that faith save him? And what's the assumed answer? No. Notice that James is not asking the question, by the way, can those works save him? There are some who, who have thought throughout history that James, here in James chapter 2, is teaching a, a works-based salvation. Martin Luther asked for the book of James to be removed from the Bible. But James is not asking, do works save us? He's asking if the faith can save him. And the answer is no. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things that they need for the body, what good is that? None. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, now, here's where James' argument shifts and where this passage has been so misunderstood. If we take a vertical understanding of this passage, as though, John, or as though James is saying, but God may say. He's not talking about a, a vertical uh, uh, orientation here. He's not talking about works showing my faith to God. Because man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. No, he's talking about horizontally. If I tell you I have faith, how can you see that? Dan, let me show you my faith. Isn't it pretty? Want to touch it? You can't do that. There's no way to show somebody your faith apart from your works. And so someone may well say, James assumes this argument, hey, look, buddy, you have faith, I have works. James says, show me your faith apart from your works. You can't, by the way, that's his point. You can't show someone your faith apart from your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. Now here's where this passage gets really interesting. Verse 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. James equates a mere intellectual assent to the person and work of Jesus Christ and God being one with the faith of demons. A faith that does not save. Why? Because it lacks repentance. It lacks a change in direction. It lacks affection for God. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And he goes on. The point that James is making here is that you you can think all the right things, but without repentance, there is no rescue from the wrath to come. And so he, he sentences them, if you will, to hell. Look at how this passage goes on. 
bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And he knows the excuses they're going to make. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is, is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And there's a word play going on here between children and stones. The assumed argument is, why do I need to repent? I'm a Jew. I'm part of the right people group. I'm an American. I'm a Baptist. I'm a member at Trinity. What excuses do we make? I, I'm obedient. If you're relying on your obedience anyways. But he's very clear here. Hey, look, your identity, your self-imposed identity is not going to save you. Just because you're a Pharisee doesn't make you safe. Just because you're a Sadducee doesn't make you safe. Just because you're a child of Abraham doesn't make you safe. Just because you're an American or a member of Trinity Baptist or, or, or part of the right political party or whatever, it doesn't make you safe. Only Jesus does that. Only Jesus saves us from the wrath to come. And how do we find ourselves in Christ being good fruit? Well, through repentance, which is the same thing as faith, just looked at from the other direction. It is a turning from idols and a turning to God. It is a change of affections. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into, into the fire. If you are an apple tree or an apple farmer and there are trees in your orchard that never bear fruit, are you going to keep them? One of the things we're going to see as Jesus illustrates the kingdom over and over and over again for us is fruit, not foliage, is the goal of salvation. I go to church, I go to all the Bible studies, I'm growing, check out all these leaves that are on my branches. Where's the fruit? Where's the service in the church? Where's the evangelism in the world? Fruit, not foliage, is the evidence of salvation. And if you're like, look at me, I go, to, I go to Bible study, I go to growth group, I go to Sunday school, I go to prayer group, but I, I, don't, I don't serve anywhere, I don't, I don't tell people about Jesus, I don't, I don't give. Man, that's dangerous. That's a tree that's primed to be cut down and burned and thrown into the fire. It's a tree that might be clinging to an identity other than Christ. It's a tree that might have faith, but not a faith that saves. If this seems harsh, if you're like, man, Logan, just being mean today. John the Baptist, he couldn't mean that. If that's how this feels to you, then you don't know who God is and you don't know who you are. Amen. Somebody's going to get struck by lightning this morning. If this feels harsh, then you don't know who God is. And you don't know who you are. Because I deserve every bit of wrath that God could possibly place on me. What I don't deserve is forgiveness and grace in Christ. By the way, if you deserved it, it cannot be grace. 
Every time you talk about grace, every time you sing of grace, every time you read of grace, the underlying assumption is that you don't deserve it. Scripture speaks of wrath as payment, but salvation as grace. We're all guilty. We're all guilty except for Jesus. We all deserve to die except for Jesus. He didn't deserve to die, and yet he did. And John is preparing the way. The one is coming whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. I'm just baptizing you with water. He's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit and with with fire. We need Christ. We need his death to cover our death. We need his righteousness to cover our wretchedness. We need his death to cover our debt. We need his life to liberate us from sin. And how do we escape this death sentence, this wrath sentence? Repentance. Listen to Don Carson. What is meant is not merely about repentance. What is meant is not merely intellectual change of mind or mere grief, still less doing penance. Repentance is a radical transformation of the entire person, a fundamental turnaround involving mind and action and including overtones of grief, which results in keeping in fruit keeping with repentance. And so the the Pharisees and the Sadducees arrive, and John issues them a sentence after this showdown. But the last thing he does is to offer us all solace. He doesn't leave us there. He ends with words of comfort. Look at verses uh, 11 and, or I'm sorry, um, yeah, 11 and 12. Did I put 12 and 13? in your outline. I put it in my notes, but that's, it's wrong. It should be 11 and 12. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance. This word for here, um, we use for in many ways, uh, and, and acts and various other places have gotten confused, but for can mean with the result that, and it can mean on the occasion of. It is the second that John means here, He's not saying, I I baptize you with water with the result of repentance. No, he's saying, I baptize with you uh, with water on the occasion of your repentance. He's baptizing them because they're repentant, not baptizing them so that they will be repentant. This is why he refuses to baptize the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's probably also why he refuses to baptize Jesus. Because Jesus had nothing to repent of. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. Uh, Even the lowest class of slave, I'm lower than that in relationship to this guy. He will baptize you. He will place you into something by the Holy Spirit and fire His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. A winnowing fork was used after wheat harvest and either in a depression in the ground or a pit dug. When the wind would blow, the farmer would uh, would grind out the wheat in, in uh, in this depression in the ground with a large stone and probably oxen, and, and it would separate the wheat from the chaff. And then he would take a winnowing fork and he would scoop it up and toss it in the air, and as the wind blows, the chaff would get blown away and the wheat would fall, and all that was left over was wheat. 
And this is the picture that, that, that John is, is giving to us. This one who's coming, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork, by the way, the word for spirit is the same word in Greek for wind. The wind that blew the chaff away, we're being drawn into that image of this holy wind, this Holy Spirit. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, and he will separate the wheat from the chaff. The good news is we don't all have to be chaff. The end of us all doesn't have to be burned up in wrath. Why not? Because one who is coming, who will die in your place, who will be resurrected in victory, it is, it is towards him that we believe. It is because of him that we repent. And he will baptize you with fire and with the Holy Spirit. And this is exactly what happens in Acts. At Pentecost, when the church is, is indwelt by the Spirit and tongues of fire descend in this image and, and, and now the, the saved are filled placed into the Holy Spirit. This is our reality. And when we are placed into the Holy Spirit, as we're told in Ephesians, He, that is the Spirit of God, is the deposit in us, guaranteeing our inheritance. And when we will turn from all that we used to love and shift our affections to Christ, when we repent and reject all of those things, that sinfulness, that pride, that legalism, that license, those idols, those things we look to our happiness for, and we turn to Christ in faith and repentance and believe and trust Him and love Him, our end completely changes. We don't have to fear what is to come, because it's not the wheat that gets burned up, it's only the chaff. In closing, moving quickly, forgive me, longer than 45 minutes, I guess. How many of us have our security wrapped up in our identity? How many of us, uh, how, how many of us look at the identities of, of people in the world and go, oh, my, at least my identity is better than that? Are we, are we clinging to identities of conservative or liberal, Democrat or Republican, heterosexual, homosexual, non-binary, white, black, Hispanic, rich, poor, Jew, Pharisee, Sadducee? None of these will save you. Only Jesus Christ. Only Jesus Christ. The reality is that everyone, no matter what their identity, unless their identity through faith and repentance is being found in Christ, will face judgment. The Pharisees made excuses and were angry at being confronted. Don't be them. The others confessed and repented and trusted. Who are you? And what will you do? But more than that, what will we do? Who are you? And, and, and who are you? what is your identity going to be? But then, once your identity is found in Christ, what will you do? Will you be faithful like John to discharge the message? Will we be like the Thessalonians, letting the, the word of God ring forth from us and putting our, display, our faith on display? Is reaching 500 families in five years a great goal for somebody else? 
Is the power of one investing in one family once a month for one hour over the course of a year, is, is that a great idea for those who have the gift of hospitality? But I'm not like that. Hospitality is never given to us as a gift in Scripture. It's simply commanded of every believer. My prayer is that we will be a First Thessalonians 1.8 kind of church. My prayer is that we will understand that fruit, not foliage, is the evidence of repentance. My prayer is that none of us will cling to our identities for salvation or, or, or simply uh, fr- foliage growing as we consume the word of God but never get out and do the work of God. I want us to be a church of which people say, not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in, in Walla Walla and Washington, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Heavenly Father, let us not cling to identities. Let us not uh, fall guilty to relative righteousness, simply thinking that we're better than others, whether it be through legalism or license. But may we be a church that puts to death what is earthly in us, that does not cling to idols that can never satisfy, but that seeks to have our satisfaction in you and in you alone. And then, Lord, would you let the word, your word, ring forth from us? Would you give us boldness to open our homes and our lives? Would you help us in this moment, in this day, to to be good fruit inspectors and to take a look at our lives and ask what fruit is being born in our lives? Is there love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? Or are we simply still having attained to an intellectual pursuit of who who, who Jesus is or an intellectual knowledge of who Jesus is, still just pursuing all the worldly stuff that can never satisfy us. Lord, would you help us to understand that as Christians and as a church, repentance and the need for repentance and even the desire to repent is not abnormal but normal. May, may, May there be a willingness in us to repent to turn from our previous ways of thinking and living and acting, our previous sources of joy, and to turn to you. And Lord, as we approach your table, may we take seriously what we are about to do, knowing that as we're told in 1 Corinthians, some have become sick and even died for not taking seriously your table and what you have done for us. So we ask your blessing on this time in Jesus' name.